When you think of all-time kid-lit rock star Beverly Cleary, I bet there are a few characters that immediately come to mind. Ramona Quimby, her big sister Beezus, Henry Huggins, Ralph S. Mouse, and Ellen Tebbets, to name a few. These fictional kids lived in the worlds that so many of us inhabited as young readers ourselves, and they made us feel less alone as we navigated those early school years especially. As I prepared for episode 265, though, I discovered something new. Beverly Cleary also wrote for older readers in the tween and teen age groups. This might not come as a surprise to you, but I had no idea. This week's guest suggested that we cover one of these titles. So today, we dive into 15, which was published all the way back in 1956. Our star is Jane Purdy. Like the title of the book would suggest, Jane is 15. And throughout the book, she navigates her first real crush on, and later relationship with, Stan Crandall. Jane and Stan's romantic journey is delightfully simple and straightforward, and as a result, feels timeless and relatable even today. We'll discuss the enduring truths of 15 in great detail on this episode. My guest and I also fangirl over Beverly Cleary's incredible ability to tap into the teenage brain and experience. We talk about how hard being 15 can feel, the undercurrents of class and money in 15, the charming 50s references throughout the novel, the awkwardness of early crushes and dating, and what you should buy your crush when they're stuck in the hospital with appendicitis. Unfortunately, we also have to unpack an extremely disturbing and xenophobic scene set in a Chinese restaurant, which was easily the low point of 15 for both of us. As you know, I love when I have the chance to welcome returning guests back to the podcast. And that is exactly the plan for today. Allison Rose Greenberg makes her second appearance on episode 265. Allison is a screenwriter and the author of Maybe Once, Maybe Twice, and Bad Luck Bridesmaid. She lives in Atlanta, but is quick to say she was born in New York City. While attending the University of Southern California, Allison took her first screenwriting class and fell head over heels. A journey from writing led to marketing jobs before coming full circle back to her first love. Allison speaks fluent rom-com, lives for 90s WB dramas, cries to Taylor Swift, and is a proud single mom to her two incredible kids, two cats, and one poorly trained dog. You can follow Allison on Instagram at allison.greenberg and on Twitter at allisongreenberg. Don't forget that you can follow SSR on Instagram at SSRpod, as well as on Twitter at SSRpod and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. I love hearing from listeners on social media, so please don't hesitate to reach out or tag the show with your thoughts about today's episode. If you already follow me on Instagram, you know that I have spoken at length about the recent influx of even more influencer-driven book clubs that, if you ask me, are missing an important opportunity to amplify lesser-known authors and to give their members a fun, meaningful, connective experience. I will resist the urge to get on my soapbox about that here, but I will let you know that I have a great alternative for you which is the SWR Book Club. SWR stands for Shit We Read, and membership in it is one of many perks you can access when you become an SSR supporter on Patreon. I invest a lot of time and love into running SWR, and I am so proud of what we've built together. This month, we've been getting into the Halloween spirit with The Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow, and in November, we're discussing Jessica George's Mame. Patreon members also get an invite to our Discord channel, newsletters, bonus episodes, exclusive Q&As with podcast guests, and more. It means a lot to me to put those extras together as a thank you for the people who show their support for this independent podcast. Join the fun for as little as $1 per month by going to www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and use code SSR podcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. We all use Amazon for plenty of things, but I personally love looking for opportunities to spend my money elsewhere when I can. Enter Libro.fm for all of your audiobook needs. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. 
You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Allison. Welcome to SSR. Thank you for having me back. It's always fun to have an old friend come back on the show. And last time you were on, we did something sort of historic for the podcast. We talked about an adult book that I learned over the course of our conversation many teens had read. We are going for like a real classic of YA today. This was a book that was written for teens long before YA was even a thing. It's called 15 by Beverly Cleary, published in 1956. And I'm so embarrassed to say that I had never even heard of it before you mentioned it to me. I was shocked, like excited and shocked. So tell me everything about this book for you. You suggested it and it sounds like it was really important to your young life. So just tell me more. This is like one of the books similar to Summer Sisters that I was like, oh, but it's not as sexy or, you know, this is really YA, but it felt like, oh, you got all the first butterflies reading it. And this seems like something my nine-year-old daughter honestly could read. And I feel like I was probably not far off, like maybe nine, 10, 11 when I first read this. This copy's from like 1991 somehow. So I, I don't know. I'm sure my mom had it or gave it to me, but it was like, I just remember reading it and getting all the feels. Like it just felt so romantic and it made me romanticize adolescence. And this is of course like adolescence of the 1950s, but I I just still remember reading it for the first time, just going like, oh, is this what it's like to like a boy? It was almost like I read it before I even knew what it was like to like a boy. And then it became like the blueprint for like what to expect, which is so sweet. Miserable. Miserable. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> miserable. sweet and miserable at the same time, which feels pretty yes. accurate to my experience. I feel like, I mean, most people, at least speaking for myself, like we think of Beverly Cleary for books like Ramona the Pest and Henry Huggins and like all of those books for younger kids. So I was really excited to find out what her work for a slightly older audience would be like. And I was not at all disappointed. I mean, the thing that Beverly Cleary was so amazing at was like really understanding what it means to be a kid and we did an episode about Ramona the Pest not so long ago and I was just like so surprised by how perfectly she captured every feeling of being in that case I think a kindergartner like it's just unbelievable to me how amazing she was at that and in this book she does the same thing just inhabiting the mind and heart of a 15 year old girl named Jane. I just I think she is such a superstar. She passed away a couple of years ago. So it's it's neat to look and see all of the great tributes that are up there on the internet about her. But let's talk about Jane because Jane is our is our window into this story. And Beverly Cleary does such an amazing job of inhabiting her. What are your thoughts on Jane as we come back to 15, Allison? How did you relate to her this time around? And do you remember what you thought about her when you were a kid? I think I related to her probably more when I was a kid, but even now, I mean, it's completely relatable. You don't think you're cool enough. You want to be older than you are. You want to date the older guy. You're envious of a girl who can wear a cardigan the right way. Like (laughs) you wish you could drink coffee at a diner instead of ordering ice cream, which is what you want. I think we all like she is so easily empathetic towards her because we've all been there. We've all been in a situation or liked someone and we feel like they are too cool for us or there's a girl sitting next to us who makes us feel smaller and regret what we're wearing or how we're speaking and I think she's just so really it's it's like a timeless but Beverly does is just makes this timeless this angst and this horribleness and this it's like oh this is a universal adolescence experience not just for the 1950s right yeah totally this was the same way in the late 90s for me it's the same way now for you know my soon-to-be teenage kids almost but yeah same there were so many lines that I loved that I highlighted in my book and just wrote like so relatable next to them. Yeah. One was, I think it's right after she sees Marcy, who's like the cool girl that you mentioned wearing the cardigan the right way. And she of course like doesn't respond to something that Marcy says to her in the way that she wishes she could. And the line is, 
That was the trouble with her. She always thought of the right answer too late. Or if she did think of it at the right time, she was too shy to say it. And it's like, yes, yes, absolutely. Like, yes, I still feel that way as an adult. And even little things like, you know, she goes on these dates with her parents, friend's son named George. Jane had an occasional date with an old family friend named George who was an inch shorter than she was and carried his money in a change purse instead of loose in his pocket. It's too good. And took her straight home from the movies. And like, we've all had a version of a George. All had a George. Where we're like, we have to be nice to George, even though he carries a change purse. Like, (laughs) I just feel like she is all of us. We are all Jane. And even this idea that like, she revisits this concept a couple of times throughout the book where she's like, Maybe I am feeling this way or acting this way just because I'm 15. When I'm 16, it will be different. And that in itself was so resonant for me because when you're a teenager and younger too, like every year feels so monumental, I think. And so it's like, well, if I were just one year older, then all of this would be easier and better and I would be happier. There's that need to fast forward, right? Unless, unless... Unless you peaked in high school, which like I did not peak in high school, Mm-mm. and most people I love and know did not peak in high school. No offense if you did. Congratulations. That was probably wonderful for you. <laughs> shout but out to you. Most, Thanks for listening. Yeah, shout out to you <laughs> and your lack of therapy. Bye maybe once, maybe twice. <laughs> yes, yes. I love you and I resonate with you. I promise. I'll never make you the villain in any of my books. No, but I, I think there's something just so there's something so universal about wanting to fast forward, right? And then as you're older, you want to rewind and do it all over again. But she's in this place of like, oh, I could have done that right. If, if I was 16, a oh, 16 year old Jane would know what to do. She would have, it's almost, you want to fast forward through all the awkwardness to get to the part where you're cool and where you can complete sentences in front of the boy you like. And I just, it was so, there's so much like self-reflection and vulnerability in this. And it's like, I was cringing half the time too, because it felt too real. It felt, you know, you were there with her. Yeah, it's painful. I also, I watched 13 Going on 30 recently for the first time in a very long time. Best. And there were so many parallels between that movie and this book where, and of course, like Jenna Rank in that movie is younger and she ends up being older. So there's a wider spread and it's a more contemporary storyline. And so the references are a little bit more fresh for me. But that same feeling of like, this is just because I'm young. Like if I were older, it would be easier. And we as adults know that like, yes, well, some things do get easier as you get older. A hell of a lot of other things get so much harder as you get older. And so, yes, like I wanted to reach into the pages of this book, just like sometimes I want to reach onto the screen when I'm watching 13 going on 30 and be like, I promise life is not as hard as it seems. But then I feel like such a jerk because then I feel like Jane's mom who is saying that exact same thing to her in this book and basically being like, you could have it much worse. And when my mom said that to me in high school and when my mom says that to me still, I get so mad. Yeah, because it's like no one's validating your experience and everyone's experience is individual to them and important to them. And someone else's catastrophe or best day doesn't mean you have to, you know, we don't have to measure each other. And I feel like Jane is like, to me, this is hard. Being a teenager is hard. Yeah. Right. And the mom's like, being a teenager is, is easy, you know, it's easy and it's just not. The other thing that I think is worth noting about Jane is that she is sort of painfully and wonderfully average. I read one blog review of the book that said, so many books that I read are about teens who are special for a specific reason, maybe because they have a very unique talent or they're outsiders for some other reason. But Jane was just an ordinary girl. She was attractive, but not beautiful. She made good grades, but she wasn't intellectual. She had friends, but she wasn't in a popular group. She was just a normal teenage girl. And that was part of her appeal. That's so interesting. And I there because she's not like, oh, she's that cool, mysterious girl. And she's not the total nerd like she doesn't fit into a stereotype she's just this like leveled 15 year old that's so interesting maybe that's why she's so relatable yeah and we talk so much on the show about the like not like other girls trope and he says it to her he's like (laughs) you're not like other girls I highlighted that I'm like oh stan yeah Mm -hmm. yeah he says it but then at the same time like Jane in herself like is like other girls and that's kind of why you can't help but love her yeah, and she, you know, lacks this confidence. As she, the book goes on, she starts to get this confidence. Maybe some of it's false confidence, but it is. She's very much like just figuring out who she is. And I like that Beverly Cleary didn't make it so she really knew who she was and was standing up for her or didn't like parts of herself. She mostly was just like, I don't know. I'm not fully formed yet. I don't know who I am yet. It was kind of nice to see somebody in those early, early decision years figuring it out. Yeah. 
Well, let's get into the plot. And I would say big picture with the structure and the narrative of this book, what I would want to call out is that there were so many moments as I was reading it where I was like, things are too good to be true. Something really bad is going to happen. Like this has to get more complicated at some point. And while there are a few twists and turns in the relationship between Jane and Stan, who has her love interest, for the most part, like this is a very simple story. It has a very narrow focus. It's about Jane and this new boy in town, Stan, and the way they fall in love. A few missteps for the most part, like there's not really another shoe that drops. And that I think is kind of delightful. Like that's the only word I can think of to use to describe it. And it also is a reminder to me that like now you can't read a romance written for really any age group that isn't laden down with all of these complications. But at some point, like there was a time when authors were able to write just these like really simple love stories. And now we have to complicate them to reinvent the wheel. But no, like big picture for me, this was just like a really straightforward girl meets boy book. Yes, there's no massive hook. There's no huge plot twist. There was no moment where I was like really holding my breath. I think that it was, but as you said, it's kind of refreshing because we got to really just dive into that feeling of being an adolescent, which was so powerful and so beautifully put on the page that almost we didn't need to muddy it down with some other stuff. I kept thinking that Stan was hiding something. Like that was my suspicion yes. because the twists and turns that come up later in the book, like are still, they're, like they're all still so innocent. And I was looking for hints before that, that like, no, this guy isn't as great as he seems and spoiler alert, he's really not hiding anything. But they meet one day when Jane is babysitting and she's babysitting like her least favorite client. She's a real pain. A horrible kid. She's horrible. Horrible. And Jane has decided because she's a romantic that this is the day that she's going to meet a boy. Like she's a little superstitious. And so as she's walking to her babysitting job, she's like, this will be the day that I meet a boy because I say it is, which is very sweet. And in the first of many extremely 1950s references, we learn that the visitor at the front door of her babysitting client's house is delivering horse meat for the dog. This was, I didn't remember this part. And I literally, I'm like, should I Google if this was a thing? But I don't, I'm, I'm sure it is, but I don't want to Google that because I don't want to know that they made dog food out of horse meat. Then it'll be in your algorithm forever, which we don't need. Yeah. And I'll be getting like targeted ads for exotic horse meat <laughs> anyways it was upsetting it was like very upsetting that that was a thing well especially like she kept using the phrase horse meat and I was kind of surprised honestly that in like because I have a new edition of the book I think I have the latest reprint and I was sort of surprised that they didn't take that out just because I can see how it would be really distracting for kids oh yeah my daughter if she read this would be like what do you mean Oh, she'd be done by the time they got to horse meat. She'd put it down and walk away. She would be a vegetarian, I think. And yeah. I don't know that it's like they killed spirit yeah. to feed <laughs> our dog Hampton? This makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know that you're prepared to convert her to a full vegetarian. So maybe hold off on giving this to her. Guys, if you want to convert your kids to vegetarianism, have them read 15. <laughs> yeah, because it comes up again and again throughout the book. Like it's not just one scene. Stan's job is not just delivering dog food. It's not just delivering meat. It's delivering horse meat for dogs. And we always are reminded of that. <laughs> I will say it's kind of cool that he seems to be working for like the original farmer's dog. Yeah. <laughs> because that seemed like a cool opportunity. Like, you know, Jane thought it was neat that he was working for this company, there is this undercurrent of class and money throughout the book that I also wanted to make sure we bring up. So they live in a suburb of San Francisco, I believe. And she describes Woodmont as this town that has two sections. Like we all have read stories about these towns. There's like the proverbial right side of the tracks and then the wrong side of the tracks. And there's a lot of rich kids that live, I believe, uphill. And then downhill is where Jane lives and a few of her friends. And Stan works. And and I was sort of surprised by how many times Beverly Cleary reminded us of the divide at school between the kids who had to work and the kids who didn't have to work. Like Jane is very self-conscious kind of of the fact that she's babysitting and the fact that she has to work for money. And so one of the like initial appeals of Stan is that like, oh, he also was working. So he's not going to make fun of me for having a job. Like a lot of the other boys at school would laugh at me for having to babysit. And I just thought that that was really interesting. Yeah, I liked as well that her love interest wasn't this just hunky, rich guy who came in with a nice car. Like, I think that it was appealing and she found the appeal in him of being 
beautiful and nice, but also working. I think, you know, she found that appealing, as did I as a reader. So I, I, I appreciated that about him. And Beverly Cleary like, always talks about this middle class. I feel like almost all of her characters exist, that she loves exist there, which is even more refreshing, I think, as well. Just because, it, as you said, like Jane is sort of this every girl, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing spectacular or horrible about her. It's like she's figuring herself out and it's kind of easy to watch her do that in this sort of middle class space, I think. She's not struggling completely and she's not a spoiled brat, but she's working, you know, and then she meets a guy who's sort of in the same place, although we don't really know. He's mysterious, right? We don't know exactly where he comes from. Which is why I thought he was hiding a family somewhere because like <laughs> we just knew so little about him. But no, I think you're right. Like it occurs to me that Jane is almost a grown up Ramona Quimby in a lot of ways. Like Ramona is just an every girl kind of kid who has some behavioral issues, but is very precocious in kindergarten, like so many kindergartners. And Jane is sort of your average 15 year old, which is why we love her. And she's dealing with these issues of money in class. She has all these conversations with her parents throughout the book about like what outfits she's going to wear to things. And she's trying to convince her mom to like give her a loan so that she can buy a new outfit when she does eventually go on a date with Stan. And that is a tension that I remember in high school of like, but mom, it's my own money. Like, what if we split it? Again, all of these little details that are just so relatable. Yeah, I really like that about Stan. I like that about Jane as well. I think it was nice to put them on that level. Yeah, so they both meet at work. <laughs> they, they meet when they're on the job. And one of the things that I thought was so charming about the 50s setting of 15 was how little access to information they had about each other. And and it's so easy to forget in 2023 how there was a time and a place where you could meet somebody and really believe that you might never see them again and really believe that there was no way for you to ever get in touch with them. And I grew up in the early aughts. And even then, like, it wasn't necessarily easy to track somebody down if you happened to meet them on the street. But if you spend enough time on MySpace... And if you like kind of work to the school directories enough, like you might be able to get kind of close. These kids really have no way of finding each other because of course Jane and her awkwardness and her like just, oh, she's so wonderful. Like she forgets to ask this guy's name when he drops off the, the dog food. And she's like, oh no, I like this guy, but I don't even know who he is or where he's from. I've never seen him before. He must be a new kid in town. Now I'm going to have to go babysit this horrible kid until he comes back to me. Right. She's like, I guess I'm going to have to figure out like who else has a dog. She goes through the phone book, but she like- It's unbelievable. It's like, I, you just, I mean, I at least, I forget that there was a time- when that would have been your only option. Now, I mean, I'm sure that that kids and teens and tweens would have plenty of ways to figure it out. Like they would find oh, yeah. the like dog food delivery service on Instagram and they could check and see like who's following that account. And like, it wouldn't be that hard. This is a completely different world. Yeah, you can't be a private investigator in like the 1950s, the way you can now, especially as a teenager with limited resources. So it's, that was hilarious. And all the phone calls in the book killed me, killed me. Well, like the idea that if a guy wanted to get a hold of you, he would need to call the place you were babysitting to find like, and then if you left that place early, you'd say, if a guy calls for me, tell him I went home. Like I, that killed me. I was so frustrated with Jane because toward the end, there's a scene where she's babysitting and she's getting so mad. The people who own the house are like tying up the line. Like the mom is calling to check on her daughter and Jane is rushing her off the phone because she's like, Stan's going to call me here. I was getting so frustrated with her. But then at the same time, it's like, yeah, like this is the only way that she has to get in touch with him. But like I remember being in elementary school and middle school the stress of having to call somebody's landline and like maybe talk to their dad. Like those moments were so painful. And to these kids, it's normal. Like you just, you have to have good phone etiquette. You can't be afraid to talk to an adult on the phone. You might end up talking to somebody's like boss at a babysitting job. Like this is just what they did. Even when she said, can I take a message? When she was answering, I was like, oh my God, I remember that's what we said. Can I take a message? I haven't said those words in decade. Yeah. Yeah, it's so fun. Just the way that they communicated was so different. So great news is that Stan also was into Jane and they do end up connecting. 
And Stan is very quick to ask her out. Again, all of these things happen so quickly and easily. Like, they just like each other. And he just asks her out. And her parents, while they're a little bit nervous about it, they are like, okay, fine. You can go to the movies. One of the really sort of sweet themes of this book that it's just like very 1950s is the formality with which these kids approach what we in 2023 would think of as very casual dates. So she's getting ready to go to the movies and like the outfits that she's looking at to wear to the movies and they're going on dinner dates and she's wearing gloves. Like her friend Julie is wearing a girdle to dinner, which (laughs) there's like so much diet culture bullshit in there. But like, you know, everything is so formal and fancy and I don't know. There's something so sweet about that. Like they're playing at being adults in a world that is already so much more focused on manners and like fanciness than our world. Yeah, it felt like I was never that formal even in my 20s. I mean, ever, not even now. Yeah. In my late 30s, I'm not that formal. But it, it's like, I feel like teenagers were grownups back then. Like there was more innocence, but they were, they treated the world with like such respect mm-hmm. but in this way. I mean, even when I think he comes to pick her up on the date and she isn't sitting down, but he won't sit down before she sits down. It's like most guys wouldn't even notice. Yeah, this day and age, right? But it's like this little care that they took back then to make sure everyone was like comfortable and respected. And it was, it's really sweet, actually. It is really sweet. The whole scene where he comes to pick her up at the house. I think that Beverly Cleary's insights into Jane's inner monologue in that moment, like were especially strong because Jane is just so aware of everything that she is doing wrong. Like, she's like, why isn't he sitting down? Where should I be sitting? Once I do sit, like, should I sit next to him? Should I sit across from him? Like, should I be addressing my parents directly? And that is so how I felt as a teenager anytime I did something for the first time, especially when it came to, like, a new relationship or hanging out with somebody different. And then you add parents to the mix and you're trying to have this person make a good impression it just is very stressful. And I loved that Jane was experiencing that stress. And it does feel so timeless. Like I was never and have never since been worried about like, if somebody's sitting at the same time I am, God knows my husband like sits before me all the time as he's <laughs> more than welcome to do. But like, there are other versions of that same awkwardness that I experienced when I was 15. And that I still sometimes experience when I'm in new social situations as a 32 year old. Yeah, like completely relatable. And as you said, it, and we're in her head the whole time, which, you know, because she realizes it all at once that she didn't sit when she should have sat. And she's like, well, now what? I screwed, the, you know, I screwed this up. So it's like you see this snowball in her mind, which I think is part of being a teenager, too, as we overthink everything. And she's overthinking every moment and she can't do anything right in her own mind. Right. It's like, what's my next move here? I've already like run out of options. Yes. I wanted to talk about Jane's parents for a few minutes because in most ways, I think they're like your very like standard parents, standard 1950s parents. And as Jane and Stan start seeing more of each other, they take this line on Jane's relationship with Stan that I have always sort of found confusing. I think it's more of like an old school opinion to have about young relationships which is weird to me because I feel like it's in some ways more progressive I already feel like I'm not explaining it well but I'm going to try so I feel like there's this trope and this theme and this idea in books written during and about this time period where adults were very leery of young people quote only seeing one person Hmm. like there's this expectation that young people should be dating around. And we see that in this book. Jane's parents aren't telling her not to date, which I think is what we might expect in 2023 to see from like more conservative parents or like more protective parents. We would expect parents like that to be like, no, you're not going out at all. You can't date until you're 18. You can't date while you're living in my house. And what we often see or what I've seen is the opposite, where it's not don't go out. It's Actually, how about you go out, but I'm uncomfortable that you're seeing the same person over and over again. Yeah. And in 2023, it's like, I feel like, you know, the most conservative or protective parent would say, don't go out at all. And then the next step down from that, like conservative protective parent would be like, I want you to only see one person, you know, like this idea of dating around, if anything, in the 21st century is seen as like 
so wild. And like, I think a lot of parents would have judgment about that. So I just, I'm sort of fascinated by that whole concept. Yeah, they they said so many times, you're seeing a lot of this Stan boy. And, that, and they said that in sort of this warning tone, that it wasn't a good thing that, that she was seeing so much of him. And I couldn't tell if it was that they wanted her to date around or if they didn't want her to get serious with anybody. Yeah. And it may have been a little bit of both, but I feel like he was such a good kid and a nice kid. He's the kind of guy who you'd want your daughter to see a lot of if she's going to be seeing someone. Mm-hmm. So uh, to your argument, it maybe it was that, that they were like, they didn't want her to settle down this young. But also that day and age, two women would meet a guy and then not go to college. They would marry, you know, in the 50s, like you'd meet somebody, be serious with them, marry them mm-hmm. and maybe not and start a family even young. So it could have been also that they wanted her not to be tied down to anyone. The dad seemed more progressive than the mom, yeah. which I also appreciated, you know, because usually it's the father who's going to get his gun out and tell <laughs> tell the boy how to respect his daughter. But it, he was more like, no, she should, you know, you should go. We should let her go. And the mother was more of the worrier, which is sort of how my house was growing up, or my mom was more of the worrier. Yeah, dad's like jokey. He's a little embarrassing. Yeah. He wants Jane to have fun. And I think to your point, like, yeah, maybe it's that they don't want her to go out at all. And maybe there was this sort of idea that if teenagers were seeing more of each other, maybe things could get like more physical or more serious. And that's maybe because because parents weren't coming right out and saying that in the 50s, maybe this was like code for like, how about you just, you know, sort of keep things in the daylight and like keep see things, a on, more things on the surface. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I always just think that's interesting. So the date goes well, apparently, even though Jane is, of course, like so nervous at the movies and just all those details of going to the movies with a boy for the first time. Everybody has their own version of that. Like, where, where are my hands? Where are, where are their hands? Like, Should I lean close to the person? Like, what movie is this? Like, should I pay attention to the movie? I already missed (laughs) half the movie because I was already so worried about this whole arrangement. And of course, she thinks that, like, the date was not great. But Stan wants to see her again, which is, it just, you can't help but celebrate with her. I wrote down the line. She says, she had a good time in a miserable sort of way. Yeah, I love that. It's, like, perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. It's, like... I enjoyed this as much as I could, except I was overthinking the entire thing and ruined it all in my head. Yeah, I ruined it before it even started. Yeah. I remember coming out of early dates at movie theaters that were like completely chased and like we were, you know, sitting on opposite, like as far as we could have been sitting apart from each other in these movie seats. And I remember like coming out of those movies just like drenched because I was like so nervous, (laughs) you know, from the whole situation. And how can that be fun? It's not going to be fun. It's going to be miserable. Yeah, because you can't talk to the person. So nothing's changed about your relationship once you've entered that place and exited. Like nothing. You haven't like furthered conversation or furthered interest in each other. So it's just like sitting next to each other, terrified. And then I remember like waiting for my mom to pick me up at the mall afterwards. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. But like, yes, like drenched in sweat because it is, it's nerve wracking. Yeah. Well, and then she, she even says something kind of specific to that because they go out to this like soda shop after. It seemed like she felt okay about the movie. And then once she has to actually talk to him, there's a line where she's like, it was much easier when we were sitting in the movies, like having to look at him and talk is way more difficult. Yes. Yes. Welcome to life. Yes. If only we could all just be looking at a screen together. And that's how we all ended up in 2023. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And she, you mentioned this before, but she orders ice cream instead of coffee. And she feels like really self-conscious about that. Also, she learns that Stan knows Marcy, who is that like popular girl that she has such complicated feelings about. So now she's feeling like super Miss Muffetish, as she says, which I thought was so funny, like, these cool girls make her feel like Miss Muffet. Um, and now she's feeling small and she doesn't think that Stan's interested in her. But yes, he does call her back. They start seeing each other more. The big night is when he asks her to go to dinner in the city, which is where he's from. And they're going to go to Chinatown. Now, there are a couple of things going on here. First of all, Marcy's coming, which is devastating because Jane was so excited to have this night out with Stan. And it turns out that he's invited like some of the cool kids too. It's a group date. No one wants a group date in the beginning. No. No. I mean, even now sometimes, like, you don't always like that one couple that's invited or maybe there's, like, a new person in the group that you're not sure about. 
kiss of death for sure. Luckily, she's able to invite Julie, her best friend. There is one like thing that I wanted to call out because if I have one criticism of this book, it's the way a lot of the stuff happening in Chinatown is handled. It's very 1956. Yes. I was just reading it while clenching my jaw. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, again, like this is, a, this is, I don't want to say like, why is it still in the book when there have been all these reprints? Because it's important that we see the way that this conversation has evolved. But I was surprised by how much of it was still in here. I won't repeat what is written in the book, but there are just a lot of racist comments made about people who live in Chinatown, people who might work at this Chinese restaurant, lots of snide jokes about Chinese food and what might be in it. Um, There's some bastardization of the Chinese language. And there's just like lots of teasing of everything that's going on in this Chinese restaurant. To Jane's credit, she, while being nervous about eating a lot of the food at the Chinese restaurant, is at least kind of empathetic to the experience of like being a person whose food is different than like the majority of the folks in a place. So like there's one line where it it reads, American dishes such as hush puppies or her mother's casserole, it smells like heaven, would probably sound distasteful to the Chinese. It was only a question of what you were used to. So Jane at least like has the presence of mind to realize that a lot of what's going on with her friends is just about like being unfamiliar with the Chinese food. But other than that, the scene was like pretty hard to read for those reasons. It's brutal. Yeah, it's a brutal scene. It's probably one that I would hope the author, if she could go back, would just do it all differently. (laughs) Yeah, I think she probably would. Um, What other thoughts do you have about that scene, that like big night out in Chinatown? First of all, it was like so interesting. The car situation to me was so fascinating. The parents were very weary of Stan driving any car, his car into the city. That was like a big deal. And I guess I put myself in the parents' shoes and I was like, yeah, you know what? Like if someone was going to take out my daughter or if my son was going to drive into the city, I would have probably qualm, a little bit of qualms about it. But it was such a big deal like to get permission. And that, and they did such a parent thing, which, okay, but it, does your friends, do your friends' parents think it's okay? Are yeah. they allowing her, you know, because if they allow her, then we're more swayed to allow you to go. But that was interesting of it in and of itself. But I thought she is like, I was like, this is such a bad date for her. I mean, she was so felt so out of place. She didn't succeed while trying new things. She couldn't fake it very well. I mean, we're so in her head that I actually think she probably did fake it. But we were the ones who were with her. So we couldn't tell. I would love to see like, what Stan thought of that date. Because he's like, oh, you seemed a little miserable when we pull back from it. But she was more than a little miserable. You know, she doesn't like trying new things in front of people who are so great at trying new things. And that's, you know, she had the girl that Marcy, who's great at anything. And it just made her feel smaller and smaller as the date went on. So it it was hard to feed that, that whole chapter. And then she, I love that they went and they found a, like a little you know, diner to go to and she got her burger and her fries or whatever she wanted. And I think that was a really sweet moment where we saw how she would have been on a date where she was more comfortable, right? Yeah, it would have been great to get the perspective of some of the other kids at the table because Jane thinks they all have done this before, that they're all really comfortable with the menu and that they love all the food and they know how to use chopsticks. And I'm sure that there's at least one other kid at that table who's faking it just like Jane is. And I just think that's such a testament to like the experience of being a teenager. Like everybody's faking it all the time and yet everybody thinks that everybody else knows what they're doing. So yeah, to your point, like, you know, I wonder if other people at the table were perceiving her as being awkward or if they thought that she was doing a pretty good job because they probably were so worried about themselves and the way that they were coming off to the rest of the people that they didn't know that she was stressed out. Yes, Yes, I think you're exactly right. And it's such an interesting, it's like a third person point of view or third person point of view book, but it is all Jane's point of view. Beverly clearly could have gone out and given us some of Stan and she really just stayed with Jane, which was so interesting. But I I mean, I think that's part of this teenage experience. We get to experience the shame and the joy, the highs and the lows, but we don't see it qualified by someone else Mm -hmm. because you're so in your own head. You know, we don't get relief for her if another character actually doesn't see her acting this way. 
And I think that was such an interesting choice. Yeah. To, to stay with Jane in these really hard, uncomfortable moments. She's overthinking all of it forever because we're not hearing from another character that it actually wasn't so bad. Yes. So again, after the night out in the city, I am thinking that something bad is going to happen, that she and Stan are never going to see each other again. But no, they just keep dating. School starts. Jane is so excited to have a boyfriend as school begins. There was a section where she talks about how she's like now established as his girlfriend. This is enough to establish Jane as Stan's girl in the eyes of Woodmont High. And because she was Stan's girl, Jane floated through the week in an aura of joy. She was no longer Jane Purdy onlooker. She was Jane Purdy, Stan Crandall's girl. She belonged. The other students watched her walk down the hall beside Stan and thought, Jane and Stan. Like, this is her new identity. This is who she is now. Things do take a turn when it's time for the dance. We find out that there's a dance happening. And she's, like, so excited because she's Stan's girl, but, like, they haven't, like, really defined the relationship yet. Maybe going to the dance is a thing that she needs to define the relationship. She has all of these daydreams about, like, Stan spinning her around the dance floor and she's waiting and waiting and waiting for him to ask her to the dance and he doesn't and they're both like avoiding the conversation with each other and that whole thing was so painful. And that's when I was like, okay, is this book taking a turn? Is Stan hiding a secret girlfriend? Is he really a jerk? Is she going to go for the other guy? Like I was like, where, where are we going with this? And it was so sad and I think very... Hopefully we've evolved past that because I think a lot of women now would have, even at 15, would have the courage to say, like, I want to go to this dance with you. But especially in the 1950s, you know, you don't ask a boy out. Like He has to ask you out and her waiting for that invitation and not getting it. And then the horrible miscommunication in that moment when she wants it is it was like it's perfect teenage angst, though. I was like, this is an episode of my so-called life displayed right in front of me in the 1950s. Yeah, this situation could take place against almost any backdrop, like in terms of time and place. This miscommunication about a dance and about a date, there's always going to be a George trying to sneak in and ask the girl out because while Jane is waiting for Stan to ask her to the dance, sweet George and his change purse asks if she would like to go with him which is the reason that she like so she like jokes to Stan. She's like, LOL, like George asked me to the dance. And Stan's like, that's great. Maybe I'll get a dance with you. Save me a dance. We'll swap or would you say swap partners. We could we'll yeah, swap we could partners trade dances, for a dance. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> trade it dances. was so heartbreaking. And um, as we all do, Jane, of course, like makes up all these stories in her head about what this could mean. She stays home. She babysits the night of the dance and she's waiting around like reading Shakespeare. She decides that she's going to recommit to her studies, which I thought was really funny. (laughs) If you like a boy in the 1950s, your schoolwork just goes out the window. You're done. That's who you are now. You're a Stan's girl. You are no longer a student. But now she's going to recommit and she's going to get good grades while babysitting. She finds out that the girl that Stan took is somebody from his old school, like a family friend who he had sort of promised his first dance at this new school to. And she's pretty. Don't forget, she's pretty. And she's bitsy. Like, she's so petite that they call Ugh. her bitsy. Like that was, And I loved the best friend, like, filling her in on this, but also, like, also knowing that, like, the worst news is that, I'm like, I'm sorry to tell you, but yes, yeah, she is pretty. And you can fit her in, in your pocket. <laughs> Yeah, and I think she used the word smooth. Like, she's really smooth. Yeah, oh, that you don't want to hear that. No, I want somebody awkward and... and yeah. Gangly. Yeah, like taller yeah. than Stan. Yes. Yeah. No, but Bitsy is exactly what Jane did not want to be up against. She specifically says, like, I can't compete with this. This is too much for me. She and Stan then meet up again, and, like, he explains what happened. There's this character, Buzz, who we haven't talked about yet, who just sucks like horrible 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 like seth like a young i'm trying to think who would play him like a young jonah hill would play him in a movie yeah the character who you just want to smack yeah and who would but like thinks he's hotter than jonah hill like yes he thinks that he is so smooth and smooth like bitsy he uh, he like kisses jane in front of stan and like, it's just constantly making all these comments about Jane and, like, just ge- generally, like, objectifying the girls around them. While dating Jane's friend. Right, Julie. Like, they're, yeah, they're all in dating theory, Julie. double dating. And so Buzz just, like, is really trying to get to Stan. It, it's successful. Like, Stan is angry with both Stan and Jane, even though 
Jane was the one who'd been hurt initially. The whole thing just gets really messy. But I was surprised at Jane's behavior. Like, yeah. that was a surprising turn for me where she has this very confident day where she yeah. just, you know, it's after the things go horribly at the dance, but then she realizes that Stan really wanted to take her and he made this promise to one of his parents, you know, friends' daughters, and there's nothing romantic there. And he made this promise long before they met, but she's still a little mad at him. Yeah. But she's also feeling, you know, she gets to ride in his new car and she's feeling the way, the way that she thought and longed to feel in the, when the book starts, she's feeling that. She's the girl in the car with the hot guy and she's still a little angry at him. And so yeah. she's the one who like leans in and kisses Buzz. You know, Buzz says like, Stan, I'll give you, you know, whatever it is, a penny or whatever it is to kiss your girl. And Gross. she leans in and, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's the fallout from that, which was so great. <laughs> I just like that she acknowledged too, like, I kind of wanted to get revenge on him. Like, yes. she's so bothered initially that Stan is upset, but then she's like, maybe I kind of wanted that. Like, yes. I didn't really want to kiss Buzz, but that's, that's totally natural. And yeah, he hurt, you know, me for 24 hours. I didn't know what happened at this dance. I was really hurt. And so now I'm going to hurt him just a little bit. But her hurt was a little like, especially because the book is so chaste. Like up until this point, these two characters have never kissed. No. Nothing, which is, it was also so interesting. Interesting to be going like basically going steady, but they've never, I don't even think they've held hands at this point. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was so interesting to see that first kiss in the book be done out of a little bit of vengeance towards Stan. Yeah, it wasn't romantic at all. It was the hate kiss more than anything. The hate spite kiss, yes. Kiss, a spite kiss. And in a major turn of events that forces Jane to really play at adulthood, we learn that Stan has had to go have his appendix out. She hears this through the grapevine because she thinks that Stan has ghosted her. And she, of course, is like, he's so mad at me. Like, me kissing Buzz, that means we're never going to be able to go out on another date. He hates me. But no, he's just in the hospital. And... The whole like mental journey that she goes on to decide how to handle this, (laughs) I thought was so great because I feel like I went through that with people that I was like officially dating when I was even older than Jane. And Jane is, is like figuring out what she should do to respond to a situation that to her feels extremely adult. When she's not technically like dating this guy, like they're they're in a fight, really. Like she doesn't know where she stands. And so she's wrecking her brain. She doesn't know what to do. Like, what do you do, especially for a boy? Like there's all these gendered lines about like what one would do for a girl who's in the hospital versus what one would do for a boy who's in the hospital. And she settles on flowers, but masculine flowers. Masculine flowers. <laughs> and I don't know what I what I would choose as a masculine flower. I guess like a plant. I, I don't know. Or maybe <laughs> a cactus. <laughs> a, a cactus. Yes. That's what all men deserve. Things that could hurt them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it is like funny to think about what would you get the boy you liked who's in the hospital with appendicitis who you the last time you talked to him, you kissed his friend and you know, he's kind of mad at you. Yeah. Like, what do you get that man? Like a crossword puzzle? I don't a magazine, probably like a magazine on cars. Would have been fine. But no, flowers. She settles on masculine flowers. Masculine flowers. And that's how she gains her confidence. No steps to the hospital. Exactly. I mean, she she like goes to this florist who she who seems to have a lot of confidence that he can handle this assignment, but gives her like this ridiculously over-the-top arrangement that is so embarrassing. And like this is like the beauty of living now, where like if you were sort of casually casually seeing somebody and you found out that they were in the hospital for a fairly routine procedure, you would probably start by texting them or something and being like, hey, are you okay? Like, just want to let you know I'm thinking of you. In Jane's world, that's not an option. In Jane's world, if she wants to express concern for this boy that she really likes, that she feels like she's wronged, she has to go see him in person. And because she has manners in 1956, she can't show up empty-handed. So she has to actually go to the hospital And then he's not at the hospital, so she has to walk to his house. And she's never met his parents before. Like, But she didn't even want to go to the hospital. No. Like, the flower delivery was – it had to be a $5 order for free delivery or or for delivery. So she's like, crap. Yeah. All right, I have to actually – which I loved. I'm like, a $5 order? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Did you get him, like, one daisy? 
that's yeah. what it would be now. But she has to, she's like, okay, fine, I'll go to the hospital. Like, yeah. but she doesn't want to at all. She really wanted that florist to deliver those flowers. And she then, she's like, okay, I think she, the original plan then was to like leave it at the front desk. Yes. She really just wanted to distance herself from this as much as possible. But instead she had, like this becomes very involved and the kids at school see her prancing around town with this enormous bouquet of flowers, you know, to her mind is not at all masculine. Like this isn't what she thought. But in this whole experience, she does gain confidence. There's this huge turning point in the book and she sort of just decides like, I am Jane. I get a lot of things wrong, but I should just own it. And I pulled out so many lines from this section. All she lacked was confidence. She didn't know why she hadn't thought of it before. From now on, Jane resolved she would be Jane Purdy and no one else. When she saw Stan, she would act glad to see him because no matter what had happened, that was the way Jane Purdy felt. Maybe if she continued to be herself, Stan would like her again. And if he didn't, there was nothing she could do about it. Jane was filled with a wonderful feeling of relief at having made this decision. That was that, period. Oh, and then I love this one. She would remember she was Jane Purdy and no one else. Maybe she was doing the wrong thing, but that was the way she was. That was such a good moment and such a good thing lesson for even us at this age, which is if you have a lot of confidence, people will laugh with you in a weird situation. If you're not confident, they're going to be laughing at you. And she realizes like, oh, I can take this in stride. I actually like, I don't hate that I did this. This is hilarious. This is too big of a bouquet, but I think it's going to, I think it's going to cheer him up. Like she's like, I'm going to own this decision that I made. And it sort of changes how people look at her. Yeah. I pulled out this one too. Everyone laughed at the story, but the laughter was friendly and all because I kept my head up during the whole awful thing, Jane thought. And if I had walked down the street cringing with embarrassment, Everyone would be making fun of me now. It's like a complete change in perspective. Yes. So Stan is happy with the flowers. I guess they passed the masculine test for him (laughs) because God forbid he have feminine flowers in his home. And they go on a few more dates. And to cut to the chase at the end, he gives her his bracelet, which is really all a girl could ask for in 1956. His identification bracelet. Very mad. Talk about masculine. It's like, I was like, so that's how you DTR'd. Yeah, he's like, this is my identification and you now have it. Like, I'm giving you my identity. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It's too good. Yeah, they have a very awkward kiss, but now they're together and she's very happy. And I just, I thought the whole book, except for that scene in Chinatown, which was very disturbing, I thought the whole book was just a real treat to read. Yeah, I think so too. And it has some just, as you said, some really nice lessons in it and they feel universal. Yeah. Just own your weirdness and own who you are. You know, that confident because she really lacked so much confidence throughout the book and let that steer her into making questionable decisions and feeling bad in places she actually should have felt okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting that we get to see her transform and own who she is as she yeah. starts to figure it out. Yeah. It was, it was, I feel like she really went on a journey, which was nice. Like it really followed that traditional, like, growth track for a main character really by the book like it hit all of those sort of traditional narrative plot points and it was nice it was like a nice easy read I'm thinking this held up to your memories of it but I'd love for you to share more as a previous guest you know that this is a question that I have to ask yeah it held up for me as I'm reading it I'm like oh my god I forgot how little plot there is yeah but then that became very okay with me and I started to appreciate that there wasn't so much plot because I could focus on her feelings because they were so big and so relatable. And I think I was like, oh, I really would love my daughter to read this even now. Like nothing about it felt, and she's almost nine, nothing about mm-hmm. it felt out of reach for her or, or over her head except for we would skip the food scene. And even even if she read that scene, it would come with commentary from me on it's not how we talk, you know, experience two things and talk about people. And But I, I think it really held up and it, it seems like a really great read for little girls and even for a woman. Just a reminder to do things with confidence, even if you're a little unsure. I think Jane just started to realize she doesn't dislike who she is. She should stop living that way. Yeah, I think that's all very well said. I'm so glad you recommended this and that you put it on my radar. And I'm hopeful that one day I can read more of Beverly Cleary's teen books because I understand from my research that there are a few. Other than 15, Allison, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? My God, this is like one of those. Now I have to look at the pile. So I'm reading Carly Simon's memoir right now, which is thick. 
poison the trees. Mm. It's awesome. She's very cool. And I had no idea her dad is Simon of Simon and Schuster, which was so interesting. So there's just like big literary community and of so, I mean, this book is just like chock full of crazy experiences, New York experiences. And then I'm not even at like James Taylor yet. So it's awesome. It's, it's long. So I'm in the middle of that. I re- I'm looking at my pile. I read about last week. So you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson. I had never read it about cancel culture. Some of it I didn't agree with. And then a lot of it was very eye opening to me. So I, I don't know, I, w- I would recommend it. I think it really did make me take a step back and look at how we shame people without thinking and how we ruin lives without thinking. And look, some people deserve it. But it was I did think it was pretty interesting. It's a little all over the place, but I would recommend it for sure. Yeah, and now I need a new romance to read because these these two books were were not my favorite like romance fiction books. So yeah, you need something a little lighter. Although you'll, you'll get into some James Taylor Carly Simon territory soon. I'm like, cannot wait. I cannot wait. I bet it's going to be good. I'm definitely going to add that one to my TBR because that sounds like a great memoir. You also have a book that is now out in the world, maybe once, maybe twice. And I, as we are, as we were recording, we're recording this in the middle of September and I am getting ready to go on vacation in two weeks. And I've been saving maybe once, maybe twice for my vacation. And those listeners who checked out the episode the last time you were on, Allison, know that our origin story is that <laughs> I posted a picture of a page from your first book, Bad Luck Bridesmaid, that I was reading on a plane. And without knowing it, I I posted, and this is like a hard post on my feed. Amazing. Like the steamiest page of your whole book, which you thought was hilarious. And I appreciated that you thought it was hilarious. So my hope is that I will be reading maybe once, maybe twice on the plane and that I might accidentally do the same thing but I'm so excited to read maybe once maybe twice I can't wait for everybody listening to get their hands on a copy can you tell us all about it yes and I cannot wait to see how you read this book in an airplane you might have to like put a blanket around your body it's very steamy if you could send me the like send me the page numbers of the um the reference the references so that I can post the correct pages that would be really helpful (laughs) yes it'll be great this is what I do for my dad is I just tell him to you know black out certain pages like yeah. a CIA, likely redacted document, yeah. with black sharpie on it. It is a really a romantic drama about a woman named Maggie Vine, who's this struggling singer songwriter. And over the course of her life, she has asked two different men to show up and marry her when she turns thirty-five. And they're two very, very different men, um, and they both sort of show up in their own way as she's turning thirty-five in this space where her career isn't where she wants it to be, in a space where she has the fertility of somebody in their 40s and she's 35, right? She's she's not where she wants to be in any space of her life. And through three kind of different timelines, we unravel how she got there. And as we move forward, as she turns 35, we see her in present day as well. So it's these two kind of very different love stories that weave together in the present day. It's about a woman's decision years. I really wanted to do a book that looked at what it was like to be a woman in her 30s, especially a single woman. You know, we don't have all the time. If we want to have kids, we don't have all the time and space to wait, to wait for our careers to take off. You know, we have to let go of some dreams and that's really painful. And so I, I wanted to tell the story of a dreamer who doesn't want to let go. Oh, I love that. I'm so excited to read the book. It's been getting amazing reads from readers that I love and tend to share tastes with. So it is the first book that's going in my carry-on for this vacation, listeners. By the time this episode drops, I will have read it um, and probably posted some pictures of it. And congratulations, Allison. I will make sure that listeners have links to both of your books as well as the books that you recommended a few minutes ago. I'm so glad you came back on. Thank you for joining me again. And thank you so much for having me. And next time you write a book, you have to come back. Done. Okay. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. 
If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.